You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. I love to worship with you. Um, good to see you today. Uh, if you're our guest, thank you for choosing to worship with us. A uh, couple of things just real quickly. Later in the service, we're going to be uh, together observing the Lord's Supper today. Uh, and so if you are a guest, you may be wondering, is it okay if I participate in that? Uh, I will say this. We uh, practice what is called a close communion, not a closed communion. Uh, and so uh, it's not required that you be a member of First Baptist Church to participate with us. It is important to us, however, that your testimony be one of faith in Christ. And so uh, that's not something that we police, obviously, in the service or anything like that. But uh, just as a matter of uh, information for your sake and benefit this morning. Uh, and again, that will come a little later in the service today. Today we're going to be in Psalm 100. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would appreciate you joining me there. Uh, let me also tell you that t- two of the songs that we sang this morning were actually requested by a 10-year-old. Uh, I don't know that Nixon is here this morning, so hopefully he is watching online. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Nixon said, can we sing uh, 10,000 Reasons and Run to the Father? I thought that's pretty cool for a 10-year-old kid uh, to care what songs we sing in worship, uh, for one, and couldn't have picked two better songs in my opinion. Um, let me just also throw out a little bit of trivia to you. The other song that we sang there, How Great Is Our God, that song is almost 20 years old, y'all. Uh, did you realize that? I know you think those, those are all new. That, that song is in a lot of hymnals now. Uh, and so if you were doubting for a moment how fast time flies, yeah, 2004 is when that song was released. And so uh, almost 20 years old now, and it's become uh, timeless uh, in many ways. And so... Uh, Let me also mention, if you do not follow Outfitter Church on Facebook, if you're on social media, follow them. Um, The reason for that is because you will get regular updates of things that God is doing up in Wyoming. And since we're a partner church and support them regularly through our budget, which, by the way, I would say is super important all the time. uh, But especially in the summer, it's important that you be faithful in your giving. And so many of you are. Uh, God is graciously providing for the work that he's doing, not just here locally, but around the world through your faithful giving. Uh, but with uh, us being a missions partner, a supporting partner uh, with Outfitter Church, and so today is a pretty significant day uh, in the life of Outfitter. They have, uh, for much of their history, uh, which isn't very long, they've only been a church uh, for just a few short years now, uh, but God has been really blessing there in Bar None. In fact, uh, if you look at that image, that bottom image that you see down there at the bottom between the Bar None and the Wyoming, for the longest time I had no idea what that was. That is actually the uh, runway layout of an airport because Bar None years ago was literally an airport. It was an airstrip. And so if you go there, they have incredibly long straight roads that used to be runways. And they have now um, paved them, of course, a little differently, and they have um, sidewalks along the sides of those and everything. It's really a cool thing. And so Outfitter Church, for much of its history, has been meeting in a hangar, uh, and it's been converted. There's a restaurant as a part of the hangar and in the large gathering spaces where every week they would set up uh, for worship and tear down after worship and all that. They've been a, a portability project. They only recently bought a piece of land, and so uh, today they are meeting on that land for the first time under a tent, 
Uh, and so uh, they're uh, believing God to provide for them to be able to build a building uh, on that property. And so if you will follow them on social media, it'll be a way for you to stay informed of ways that you can pray. And also, I would add this. If you listen to podcasts, uh, the pastor there, Tyler Martin, has a podcast called the Relentless Pursuit Podcast. Um, in fact, he's interviewed uh, Jace one time, and uh, he was really hard up for guests that day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was really a very good interview, in fact, about some, uh, some just uh, cultural apologetic stuff that uh, Jace has been immersed in so much uh, over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, but he just recently did one with another church planter that's actually in Montana. And the crazy thing about this guy's story uh, is that he was charged by a grizzly bear early one morning while elk hunting. He knocked an arrow, pulled back, was ready to, to, uh, uh, to kill an elk, and looked up, and lo and behold, he was, uh, there was a, a grizzly bear coming at him, which, if you know anything about that, it's, it's illegal to kill a grizzly bear unless it's about to take your life. And so he just happened to have his pistol. He hadn't even been you know, carrying it with him when he went hunting a couple times before, but this time, uh, coincidence, I don't think so, um, he did have his pistol. In fact, he had chambered one, and so he fell back when he saw the grizzly coming at him, fell on his back, uh, managed to, to kind of, and pulled, and he shot like 13 rounds into that bear before it finally went down completely. And so called the, it's, a, it's an amazing story, um, and so I would encourage you to listen to that. It's, it's, it's good, good stuff. So, well, we're in a summer series in the book of Psalms, and we're not necessarily looking at the Psalms uh, in sequential order in the, in the way we find them in Scripture. Instead, we're really looking at a variety of the, the functions or the genres of the Psalms. And as we've already seen, some Psalms have really more than one function, even. Uh, we've seen a Psalm that has lament alongside thanksgiving. Uh, there's the celebration of God's law. There is wisdom and confidence. And there are uh, what we would call royal or kingship psalms, uh, historical psalms, prophetic psalms. In fact, the psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 100, alongside Psalm 23, uh, is, is probably one of the best-known psalms in the entire collection uh, of the book of Psalms. In fact, if you've memorized uh, any of the psalms, you, you may have memorized Psalm 100. Um, and it actually comes at the end of a kingship section of psalms, or we would call royal psalms. If, you, if you'll glance at Psalm 93, uh, or yeah, yeah, and then uh, 95 through 98, or 99, I think it is, those are all kingship psalms. And so you'll see language there uh, along the lines of the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns. Those are kingship or, uh, or royal psalms. And so while Psalm 100 is not really one of those, it is very fitting that it comes at the end of that collection of, of royal uh, psalms. Uh, if I was to give this morning's message a title, I would call it Thanksgiving in June. Now, I haven't kept meticulous records uh, over the years of my ministry, but I don't think I've ever preached Psalm 100 at this time of year. Uh, the few times that I have preached Psalm 100, it's usually been around Thanksgiving. Uh, because it's the place that we commonly go. In fact, you'll see the heading of Psalm 100 is, it is a psalm for giving thanks. Uh, but we also know that there's never a bad time to give thanks, right? Uh, and so this is the psalm that we are going to look at today. Um, let me say this, we all worship. We all worship. Whether you regularly attend a worship service like the one you're sitting in right now, uh, whether you participate in the worship service this morning, whether you sang alongside others, uh, whether you actually prayed when we were praying, we all worship. Uh, in fact, I, we were made to worship. 
When I was much younger, uh, I worshipped, in fact, I brought along a picture of one of the objects of my worship that I wanted to, uh, to show you. Yeah, I, I really felt like more than anything in the world, I needed a Jeep CJ7 Renegade. Uh, and it had become, to some degree, an object of my worship. I was convinced that if I owned a Jeep Renegade, uh, if I had one of those, my life would be complete. People would think I was cool. More importantly, girls would think I was cool. Uh, I would have a lot of fun. I had a poster of a Jeep CJ7 Renegade, much like that one, on my bedroom wall. Later, uh, as, as an older teenager, I researched how much a Jeep CJ7 would cost, and I uh, would dream of owning one someday. And it, it may seem silly, and in many ways it is, of course, but I think it helps us understand a little bit of what we're talking about today when it comes to worship. Because I not only saw inerrant value in that Jeep, but I also saw the benefits for myself of owning one. So I focused on what those benefits were and on what they, they could do for me. And my, my focus fueled my imagination and it stirred my affections and my aspirations. In fact, I, I was trying to figure out how many lawns I would have to mow to be able to buy one of those things. And in fact, Dan, during the early service, he looked it up and you can still get one. I think that's a 96 or 86 model maybe. About $30,000 will get one of those. Um, I have a birthday coming up next month, by the way, if anybody's interested. I, I mean, think about how cool I could be as a pastor if I was driving around. And, you, see, you see how it happens? I, I mean, when we understand what, what, what happens there and how easily something can become a, an idol to us in some ways. Now, I wasn't bowing down in front of the poster in my bedroom or anything like that. Uh, but it, it, it grabbed my attention, probably in some unhealthy ways. And I think when we understand that, we can see that we all worship. And we can even see what it is that we're tempted to worship besides God. In other words, what are the idols that we worship many times? You see, worship involves three things fundamentally. It is a belief in the inerrant worth of something. In fact, that's why we call it worship. It's actually worth shift. So when we sing songs of praise and adoration to the Lord, we are recognizing his great worth. That's what worship is. It's a belief of, that, that this thing has inerrant value to me. It's the worth of something. It's a belief in the benefits of what having that something or a relationship with that someone may do for us. And it's so then a longing, a desire, an aspiration to have that something. So we can worship money. We can worship cars, we can worship power, we can worship prestige, we can worship pleasure, we can worship excitement and adventure and almost anything, really. If we think something is inherently valuable, we believe that by having it, we will be blessed, we will be better off than we are now, and we deeply long for, desire it. We are, in a sense, we are worshiping that thing. So one simple way to detect our idols is to fill in the blank here. If only I had blank... My life would be complete, or I could experience complete satisfaction, or more than anything, I really wish I had blank. So we're going to use Psalm 100 today to explore the vital issue of worship a little more deeply, who we worship, why we worship, and even how 
we worship. I think it's vital for us to understand why we are talking in part about what it is that we do together here collectively on Sunday mornings. We're also talking about much more than that. We're talking about what it is that drives our lives because I am in no way suggesting today that this is the only time or the only place where we worship. When you leave here each week, you leave here hopefully worshiping. And then when you come, you bring your worship with you. So what is it that drives you on Monday morning or Tuesday or Wednesday? And so with that in mind, I want us to, once again, together stand this morning, and we're going to, together in unison, read aloud Psalm 100. If you do not have a a copy of the ESV, uh, I would encourage you to read from the screen so we'll all be together on this. Psalm 100, let's read it together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's notice from those first couple of verses who it is that we worship. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who has made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so in Psalm 100 here, we see that we have two names for the one whom we worship, the Lord and God. Four times in five verses, God is called here by his covenant name, the Lord. This is the, the name of God. In Hebrew, he is Yahweh, sometimes rendered in English as Jehovah. It, 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 you see, in Hebrew, uh, words consist of large consonants uh, that are then accented with vowel markings to help guide pronunciation. I don't want to get off into the weeds of, of the original language necessarily, um, but the original Hebrew didn't actually have vowel markings. In fact, if you, uh, when we were in Israel just a few years ago, I noticed if you were to, to read a Hebrew newspaper in Israel today, it doesn't have vowel markings. So people just know what the words are and how to read them. Think, if you were to read a, a, an essay or something in English, and you were to remove all of the consonants and only have vowels, um, then that's, that's kind of the sense of what we're talking about. You would be able to kind of make sense of that, um, most likely. And so... And that's the idea uh, of what we find here. So vowel markings would be considered kind of like training wheels for uh, beginners in helping learn the language. So when it comes to the name of the Lord, we really have two different kinds of manuscripts. Those that have no vowel markings at all and those that mark the name of the Lord with the vowel markings used for the word actually Adonai, which means the Lord. Why? Well, very simply because Jewish people wanted to avoid the severe offense of taking the Lord's name in vain. Maybe you've heard of the great lengths to which a scribe would go whenever they were writing and they, they, would, they would stop and go through, um, I mean, this entire process, this purification type process before they would even attempt to write the name of the Lord, uh, of God. And so that, that's kind of the idea of what we see here. 
And so this is where the tradition of rendering the name Yahweh as the Lord comes from. Um, In in fact, uh, even in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, made 200 years before Jesus was born, used by the disciples as what would be considered their Bibles, it had translated Yahweh as kurios. It's the word Lord. It's the Greek equivalent of Adonai. And so the pronunciation Jehovah actually comes from German scholars reading the manuscripts with the vowel markings for Adonai. Those are, those are not necessarily the original vowels, and, and we don't really know with great certainty what they were. And I think one good explanation is that God's name is a combination of, listen carefully now, he will be, he is, he was. It's believed that this explanation of the name of the Lord is behind the name for God used in the book of Revelation that you may be familiar with. In Revelation chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 4, where we find these words, Grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, uh, and are, are full of eyes around and within. One on, one, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So the understanding certainly fits the evidence It makes sense. God's name reflects his unchanging nature. Now, many of you very likely know the meaning of your name. Some of us don't. You don't really know right off the meaning of your name. Uh, We don't name our children in quite the same way that they would have in ancient times. But the name of God tells us a lot about God and who he is and who it is that we worship. And that understanding is very, very important to us. God's name reflects his unchanging character, his nature. And as Hebrews 13, 8 says of Jesus, showing that he is fully and truly God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who was and who is and who is to come. So the, the, the origin of the name Yahweh or Jehovah emphasizes another aspect of God's character. In Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses, remember from the burning bush, commissions Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses, he's fearful. He feels like he's, he's, he's not up to the task. And he begins to ask God some questions related to that. He asks God who he should tell the Israelites God is. What his name is. And so it says in Exodus chapter 3, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's a very strong identity statement, isn't it? I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. And so here the emphasis is on I am who I am. 
the verb aspect there, it's timeless. could also be rendered, I will be who I will be. And so in God's own self-disclosure, we might say, he is powerfully emphasizing to Moses both his self-sufficiency, his eternality, and his unchanging nature, or what theologically we would call his immutability. So the Lord is who he is. No one has made him who he is. He will always be who he was and who he is. He is eternal, unchanging, self-sufficient. That makes him totally different from us. You see, we are created beings who once were not and now are, but not by our own power. Now, you'll hear talk these days of a self-made man or a self-made man. There's really no such thing, is there? No such thing as a self-made man. We're all created beings. We also change constantly, it seems. I'm not who I once was, and I will not always be who I am now. And yet there is a core of me that persists even through the changes and the seasons of life, which reflects the image of God in me. I remain me even as I change. I uh, my cousin went to a family reunion recently, and he sent my sister and I a picture that he found in an old photo album there at the family reunion. And it was uh, when, uh, before Ashley was even born, just our two boys are in the picture, and I had much darker hair back then. And I had to get it thinned out every time I went to the barber shop. I don't have to do that anymore. I look very different today. Uh, I'm very different in many ways. Hopefully I've matured. Hopefully I've become more like Jesus. But but we all see those changes. but, but, But who we really are, God remains truly and perfectly who he is and never changes. It's vitally important because it is the core reason why all of our idols always disappoint us. You ever been disappointed in an idol? It's likely due to one of two reasons. Number one, the person or the thing that you were trusting changed. That's why I I would be crystal clear, hopefully, in telling you, please do not idolize your pastor. Hopefully, as I follow Christ, you can follow me, but only as I follow Christ, as Paul said. Hopefully, you, you can look up to me in the sense that I'm a faithful follower of Jesus, but don't idolize any human being because it's guaranteed you will be disappointed you will be disappointed. Number two, the person or thing that you trusted was not adequately self-sufficient. The idol did not have the ability to keep its promises. So in other words, compared to the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come, the almighty, all idols are unreliable and insufficient. They will always disappoint. As much as I was convinced in my teenage years that owning a Jeep CJ7 Renegade would fulfill me as a human being, I guarantee you, had I had that experience, had I ever owned one, I would have found out it did not. Because eventually the thing's going to break down, right? Eventually it's going to rust. Because the things of this world do not last forever. They don't. They cannot bring you ultimate satisfaction. But I want you to notice we're also told here, who alone is God. So the Lord and God. The other name used for the Lord in in Psalm 100 is God. We are told, know that the Lord, he is 
God. The word God is Elohim. It refers to the all-powerful creator. We're being told that we should worship the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, because he is God. He alone is God. He is the creator uh, of all, the all-powerful one. He is not only self-sufficient, eternally unchanging, but he is the powerful creator of all. And this truth about the Lord leads us from focusing on who uh, we worship and pondering why we worship him. Why we worship him. Let's consider that secondly. Verse 3 of Psalm 100 gives us two vital reasons for worshiping the Lord. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Notice it says, for he made us. First reason is very simple. He is the creator who made us. He gave us life. And unlike God, we are not self-sufficient. We did not make ourselves. We are creatures who are utterly dependent on our creator. And the very fact that God has made us means we should worship him. As the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said, the very fact that God made a creature at all puts that creature in debt to him as creator and created the obligation to worship him. And then it says here, we are the sheep of his pasture. Lest you think like the theist that God created all these things and then just kind of set the world in motion and now he sits aloof somehow on that rim of the universe indifferent, aloof to all that's happening in his creation. Now, we see something very different here. He desires to have relationship with us. He says we are the sheep of his pasture. We're not only the creatures of God, but we are his people. He's not only created us, but he has made us his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. So not only do we owe God worship for the fact that he is our creator and we are dependent on him, but also because he has redeemed us. Made us his. He desires to have relationship with us. And one of the things that is so foreign to the vast majority of world religions is the concept of actually having a relationship with God. That God desires to have relationship with us, and he has demonstrated that by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to redeem us, to reconcile us to him. And so uh, we we see that image here, this idea of, of, of being the sheep of his pasture, Jesus said in in John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So I wonder today, do do you know him? The question is not, do you know about him? Do do you know him? Is he your shepherd? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? He doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. He said the Lord is my shepherd. It's very personal. Do you hear his voice speaking in scripture? Are you following him, receiving eternal life from him? If you know that he is yours and you are his, you have very good reason today to truly worship him, to worship him. 
I wonder this morning, do you hear him speaking through his word? Would you call out to him today and ask him to save you and keep you if that's something you've never done before? Maybe you're on a path that says, I'm going to try to save myself. I'm going to try to be good enough. I'm going to try to earn God's favor. I'm going to try to to make my own way. You can't. Scripture is really clear when it says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk now about how we worship. How we worship. This is where a lot of confusion comes in when it comes to how we worship. We immediately think of a particular style of worship or style of worship service. Is the church high church or is it this or is it that? What what does the service look like? How is it laid out? What is the liturgy? Is there a liturgy? It's much more than that. It's much deeper than that. In fact, you you could go to various parts of the world today and you would find a wide, wide variety of styles in worship. Some of that's driven by culture. If you've never been to Africa, for example, and been a part of a worship service in Africa, you would discover there that, that the worship looks very different than it does here. There are people in other parts of the world, even other parts of our country, that are not sitting on relatively comfortable chairs like you're sitting on this morning. In some cases, they're worshiping literally up under a tree. So that's not really what we're talking about. How we worship. First of all, you'll notice here in Psalm 100, it's important that we praise God for who he is. Griff alluded to this a little bit earlier in our prayer focus. Because at its heart, worship is true adoration and high appreciation. So if you adore and appreciate anything... You know how it and you can be very, you can very easily celebrate its wonderful attributes. Ask someone that you know about something that they love or someone that they love and see if they can tell you about what makes that individual or that thing so great, whether it's a favorite food or a favorite movie or a song or an artist or a car or a sports team or athlete or whatever. If we love, respect, admire someone, then celebration of their attributes comes easily and flows passionately from us. Ask any grandparent in the room about their grandkids. You probably won't find one that will go, yeah, I don't like talking about my grandkids. In fact, they will probably, if they're on social media, they'll probably pull up some pictures for you. They love talking about those they love. I love talking about my sweet wife of almost 34 years now. But you know what I love most about her? I love who she is as a person. I don't just love her for the things that she does. Because she cooks meals for me, or she does laundry for me, or she keeps our house clean for me. All those things are important, and it's important that I express gratitude for those things. But that's not the extent of my love for my wife. I love who she is. You see, if your love and affection for someone is attached only to the things that they do, what happens if they can no longer do those things? Now, I'm not suggesting that there's ever going to be a time when God can no longer do the things that he does. But we should express gratitude and love to God for who he is. There's a favorite story of mine that comes from Westminster Assembly's crafting of what's known as the Westminster Confession uh, and and the Catechisms. It comes from a committee that was charged, crazy enough, with defining God. Can you imagine? You're sitting on a committee, and I was like, okay, your job is to define God. 
put it in words that people can understand, right? Drafting really an answer to the question, what is God? Who is God? Which became the fourth question uh, and answer of what we know as the shorter catechism. And so as this committee began to deliberate, the youngest member of the committee, it was a guy named George Gillespie, he was asked to pray. So George stood to pray for wisdom. And his prayer began with these words. He said, O God, thou art a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In thy being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And after his prayer, someone wrote down that first sentence, and the words were actually kept as a beautiful, succinct, summary definition of God. You see, someone who would pray like that, whose heart would overflow uh, with such a wonderful expression uh, to, to God about who God is, is someone who worships God in spirit and in truth. Someone who knows and loves and adores God, not just for the things that he can do for us, but for who he is. So regardless of the exact source, for over 350 years, the first four questions of that shorter catechism have stood at the core of a biblical world and life view. What it really means to see God, uh, see God life as God frames it and defines it. So if you're familiar with that, maybe you've seen it in New City Catechism, we've recommended that as a resource. The first question is, what, what is the chief end of man? Number two, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question number two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer to that, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Question number three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And then that fourth question, what is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We worship God for who he is. And then we give him thanks for what he has done. Thanksgiving is vital in all aspects of our worship. Psalm 100, again, is a psalm for the giving of thanks. And is, in fact, it's the only psalm that I can remember that, that has that actual title. Psalm 100 closely ties both praise for God, praise to God for who he is, and thanksgiving together. Praise for who he is and thanksgiving for what he has done. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. This is a call to worship psalm. Call to worship. And is courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. What does that tell us? What God does flows from who God is. Did you catch that? What God does flows from who God is. And so we bless his name. That is, we praise him for who he is, and we give thanks to him. And why exactly do we do these two things together? We could come up with a very long list, but Psalm 100 focuses on what's most important. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, there are three things most core importance to our thanksgiving. The Lord is good. 
the Lord is good. God is so good that he defines what goodness is. Now, you, you think about our goodness, any goodness uh, that, that may be in us, such as it is. It is fickle. It's often self-serving. It is many times harmed and diminished by other people's actions and their attitudes and our changing circumstances. But his goodness, in contrast, is perfect. It's undiminished by human sin. It is unchanged by any external circumstances, lying at the very heart of who he is. Much of the Old Testament is really a case study in the unfaithfulness of God's people and the faithfulness of God. And we see this throughout the uh, Old Testament. The Lord is good. The second thing I want you to notice here is that God's love, God's, uns- God's steadfast love is his hesed. Remember that word? If you've been here for any of the series of Psalms here, you know we've talked about his hesed love, which we've talked about. God's covenant faithful love, his committed compassion toward his people. It was in the 1500s that Miles Coverdale was putting together the first complete English translation of the Bible from the original languages. And he took William Tyndale's New Testament translation, finished Tyndale's Old Testament, and he coined a new word in English to translate hesed. It's the word loving kindness. Loving kindness. The ESV that that we're using this morning uses steadfast love to highlight that committed covenantal nature of God's love. God's wonderful hesed. It endures forever. It persists and perseveres, unchanging despite repeated failures and the frustrations of his people. And then notice his faithfulness to all generations. God's said is generational. God has pledged himself to be our God and the God of our children after us and our grandchildren after them. Now, this doesn't mean that the children of all believers will automatically and definitely become believers themselves. But that God will continue to be faithful to his covenant promises from generation to generation to generation. So check this out. We are gathered here today some 3,000 years after this psalm was written. And the same God who inspired these words is here with us. Let that sink in for a moment. Saving and keeping us as his own. And so we worship God by giving thanks to him for his goodness, for his enduring has said, and his generational faithfulness. And he gives many other blessings and benefits that are hard to even count. The most important reasons that we have for giving thanks to him. So what should be our response? Is this psalm written so that it just stirs up warm, fuzzy feelings inside us? And we have a thankful feeling? And it's called thanksgiving for a reason. It's called thanksgiving for a reason. So what do we offer? Well, according to Psalm 100, glad service. Glad service. So not only do we praise him for who he is and thank him for what he has done and how he has regarded us with goodness, loving kindness, and faithfulness, but we worship God by our glad service. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. 
I know we all make light of the fact that Chick-fil-A employees are trained to respond with what? My pleasure, right? My pleasure. And as cheesy as that may be, it is intended to convey that it is their joy or their pleasure to serve us as their customers. I'm not suggesting that's always true, but they're trying to let us know that it is anyway, right? Well, Psalm 100 calls us to serve God with gladness. It should be our pleasure, in other words. We should offer service to God with joy, with delight. This makes our service worship, whatever that service may be. And then we respond with joyful singing. (laughs) I love this. Come into his presence with singing. This is where some of you are quick to say, I'm out. Pastor, have you heard me sing? It's not a pretty sound. I, I am musically inclined enough to know generally when something is off, right? Like, I mean, I toured in college and sang with the group and things. And I mean, like, like something's not right. This is flat. This, the, 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 the harmony is disharmony, right? And I recognize that some of us in the room are more gifted musically than others. Some of us can actually carry a tune, while others of us, not so much, right? This has nothing to do with my or your musical ability. It doesn't. There's no suggestion here that you, you, that you sing to the Lord, but only if you sing beautifully. No. You see, God's redeemed people have always been a singing people. If we know how great God is and how good he has been to us, how can we not sing? Now, I know some of us are pretty amazing in the shower, Right? But you want that to be the extent of of it for you. Again, I understand that. But the idea here is that we sing for the joy and the delight of knowing the Lord who is self-sufficient and who never changes. We sing for the fact that he has made us and he has made us his own. He has power to create us and loves to redeem us. And for all those reasons and more, we sing You have to sing well to sing in a way that pleases God, delights your soul in Him. We forget about, for just a moment, being self-conscious and focus instead on who God is and what He has done. You'll be able to sing with God-pleasing, delightful joy. Notice how throughout Psalm 100, worship is characterized by delight, joy, gladness, Loud rejoicing, not by duty or drudgery or somber obligation. (laughs) Worship should be appropriate to God's holy character, to who he is. It should also be wonderfully joyful as it is fitting for God's love and for our gratitude. So if we could bow our heads for just a moment and close our eyes, I want to, once again called you to worship. In these final few moments that we're together and as we observe the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, I want to speak those words over you once again and call you to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. 
and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.